Welcome to Unlocked, a podcast from National Library of Scotland. I'm Lindsay Moyes. Across the series, we're showcasing a selection of archive audio which has been rescued and restored from all over Scotland as part of the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. Our theme for this episode is the environment. What I was pulling together was the recordings of nature, those field recordings, the bird song, but also that human understanding of nature and how those two things aren't different, you know. And um, I think, again, how much it can resonate for 2021, our connection with nature or sometimes our loss of connection with nature. That's National Library of Scotland curator Alistair Bell. And our first clip sums up that connection with nature beautifully. This is Helen Cruikshank reading her poem, The Golden Eagle. The Golden Eagle. My life is still and clear and cool, unstirred by wind, unrocked by tide, a little green encircled pool where tiny weeds and minnows hide and distant stars reflected ride. But once, upon a day of days, a golden eagle soaring high came swooping out of noon tide's blaze to drink my waters thirstily. And now is none so proud as I. Poet Helen Cruikshank. That clip came from the Scotland's Record Collection, held at the National Library Scotland. It's just one of many collections included in the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. Because of the vastness of what we're doing, the opportunity for any single person to listen to all the audio that's ever been put through is actually very rare. But well, one person who does get a lot of exposure to a lot of the audio is Connor. My name's Connor Walker, and I am the audio preservation engineer at the National Library of Scotland. There's stuff that I've worked on in this position that I will never forget, and that has had a lasting impact on me. The majority of what we capture is unpublished material. And often what that means, particularly with magnetic tape, is there's just a single recording. And given there's a single recording, most of what we, we have been transferring and working on, we are some of the first ears to get to experience it in a generation. Without these types of preservation projects, material like this is completely silenced. I loved transferring the Scottish Ornithological Club tapes. I think it was when my coworkers in the moving image department were the most envious of the work because they would pass by my studio and there would just be these beautiful dawn choruses wafting out. And they gave me looks as if I was in the midst of some new age therapy session. song you can hear was recorded by Christopher Milne, an ornithologist and filmmaker, and it's one of several recordings from the Scottish Ornithologists Club. Bird enthusiasts might recognise the sound of a redwing and willow wrens. The Scottish Ornithologists Club has been around for a long time. Obviously it's for all things ornithology. Jenny Park, 
project manager for Unlocking Our Sound Heritage. They have lots of audio recordings and they don't have archive vault conditions. So they were concerned about having those collections available and preserving them for future generations. And I think especially in light of what happened recently at the Fair Isle Bird Observatory, it's always a worry that you lose your collection. The Fair Isle Observatory collection was destroyed by a fire in 2019. Fortunately, most of it had been digitised, but sometimes the material itself can have a unique value. Some of the tape boxes from the Scottish Ornithologist Club have been hand-illustrated. Someone has hand-decorated the cover from the box with these wonderful illustrations. So sometimes it's not always about the contents. (laughs) Along with Christopher Milne, who recorded those red wings, the Scottish Ornithologist Club had another keen field recordist in its ranks, William Brotherston. He was a solicitor who had a passion about ornithology and his photographs of birds from the 1930s are considered to be classics. His main passion was the pink-footed goose, of which he saw quite a lot of that in Midlothian, where he had a cottage. And as well as being a member of the Scottish Ornithologist Club, he was also a founder member of the Scottish Wildlife Trust. So he really had a passion for wildlife. And here come quite a gang. Here's a clip of William Brotherston in the company of his favourite birds, pink-footed geese. In this case, migrating into Fallowflow in Midlothian. 100, 200, 300. He's basically going, that's 100. And you can hear the geese in the background, 200. That's 300. They're coming all which ways now, 400. But it's just wonderful. You just wonder where he's going to stop. (laughs) Up to 900. And they're circling round, some of them landing. Apparently he gets up to 1,200 by the end. The tapes in this collection were unusual compared to your average field recording. Oftentimes bird recordists, it was as if they were trying to hear a song and then mark it off their list and just rush to the next one. You'll hear one species for 20 seconds, and then it'll be on to the next species on a completely different day in a different location, and then on to the next. And one tape may have 50 different bird songs on it. What was special about this collection is that they were these elongated recordings where it would maybe be 30 minutes of the recorder in a field. And so you would hear multiple species. It's more than just a recording of a bird call. They're actually soundscapes. So people have taken the microphone out into the fields and you can hear the farmer cutting the hay and you can hear the birds and somebody comes past and asks the person what they're doing and they explain that they're recording bird song and then an aeroplane passes overhead and they forget to turn the recorder off in the car on the way home and the wife's asking them if they want a wee cup of tea and then they pass some roadworks. So it's a complete sort of soundscape within one recording of bird calls. (laughs) And a lot of these tapes were from the 70s. Of course, in the 70s, you would hear cars going by or an airplane overhead or a tractor or, or other types of industrial mechanical noise. But for the most part, it was so much more silent than what we're exposed to today and what neighboring species and neighboring environments are exposed to today. There can also be a poignancy in the archive when human intervention has a direct effect on the landscape. 
Yes, this clip about the rookery, this was recorded by William Brotherston in 1972 and it's at um, Fushi Bridge Rookery in Bellsmain in Midlothian, quite close to where he had his cottage. And it must have been quite a large rookery because he reckoned there were about 2,000 rooks and jackdaws that actually lived in the trees. Now the main purpose of this recording is to note the noise made from this rookery when they leave it in the morning because in about 12 weeks time the whole rookery is going to be cut down. It was actually cut down by the estate so it's a true lost sound of Scotland that no longer exists. As far as I can understand there has been a rookery there for living memory and in the autumn, as now, it forms a major roost which dwindles down. They use Borthwick Glen, but it's still a small number use it, and then in the spring it picks up again, and then of course it becomes what a rookery once more. This changing soundscape in Scotland is a theme which often emerges out of the archive recordings. Here's another example now, this time from Aberdeenshire. I used to live in Rosemount. Uh-huh. So we used to go over there every Saturday morning to, to birdwatch, you know, when we were kids on yeah. our bikes. And I live Broadford Drive, which is just up from Brigable County. Oh, okay, yeah. So it's quite handy. Do, do you notice any difference between the birds then and they are now? There are certain differences. One of our collection partners is Aberdeen City Art Gallery and Museum. And they have a wide collection of oral history interviews with Aberdeen residents. Various parts to it. Um, some are group interviews that happened in the beach ballroom. Some are recollections of shops and businesses in Aberdeen. Lots of lovely Doric contained within it. But this recording in particular is Trevor Davis interviewing an unidentified gentleman about birdwatching at Rosemount and Briggle Balgowney near Aberdeen and about the different birds that he's seen, including some rare sights like a flamingo and a cockatiel. Throughout all of the ornithological recordings, there is definitely a sense of passing time, even a relation to climate change, because there are birds which you've heard in the past that you don't hear now and vice versa. So it very much is a reflection of how things had changed since these recordings were made. We used to do counts every Saturday morning and uh, some noticeable differences are there used to be lots of moorhens mm-hmm. and you only get occasionally one or two now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. This is on the, the island between the two bridges. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, yeah I suppose they're generally sort of fresh water birds in a way, aren't they? Yeah, but you used to get a lot there. Mm. And Goldeneye, you get very few now. Uh-huh, I've seen them there. Yeah, but you used to get, I think it's um, nationally important numbers there mm. for a while. Mm-hmm. But the sewage outlet at Gardlemess has stopped. I think they've changed it to um, an outfall a mile offshore now. And the Goldeneye just don't congregate there so much. So Because the, the rubbish... 
Yeah, there's not so much crap. There's not so much crap. <laughs> and they used to fly from there to the dawn to roost mm-hmm. at night. The fact that the sounds themselves are disappearing makes it even more vital to protect the recordings. Technically, this can present a challenge and, as Alistair Bell explains, the clock is ticking. You know, the international consensus is that the cost of digitising magnetic tape, for example, is really going to reach a point that becomes untenable 10 years from now. In fact, it'll be less than that now. We've been saying 10 years for about three years. Having the older equipment and making sure it's serviced and having the skills and knowledge to be able to service and maintain the older equipment and you know all the technical aspects of that, all the parts that the major companies are no longer making available, so there's no spare parts for the equipment either. So we're in a position where yeah, a lot of these formats are vulnerable and so that stuff that has been recorded in the past might not necessarily be available in the future unless we do something about it now. The digitization aspect, the transferring the analog material to digital material, although that is the gist of the role, that's the easy part. What is front-loaded is is the conservation of the actual analog material. Sometimes tape is preserved wonderfully and you just literally put it on a tape player, press play, and it's very simple. But there are loads of issues, I suppose I could call them illnesses, that the material gets. One of them, and I think is one of the most common, is sticky shed syndrome. And this is where the oxide layer of the tape separates from the binder. So magnetic tape, it it contains multiple layers. Sticky shed syndrome is one of these conditions where, because of hydrolysis, the oxide layer separates from the binder. Now, when this syndrome occurs, it's the death of the tape. There's nothing permanently that we know of that can preserve the tape. However, it's colloquially known as baking tapes, and you can put it in an environmental chamber, generally for 8 to 12 hours, but you can bake tapes upwards to 48 hours at quite a low dry heat like 50 degrees, and that, for a temporary period of time, it helps the oxide layer come back into contact with the binder and sort of stick back into place. And generally, you have a one to two week window where you're then able to transfer that tape without it separating and sticking. However, after that two week window has lapsed, the condition continues onward. Now, that's just one of many preservation issues. You know, cassette tape getting stuck in the playback equipment or in the cartridge itself and it crinkling. There is a symptom called loss of lubricant, which has my favorite acronym, LOL. And that's exactly what it sounds like. The actual lubricant compound, it begins to exude out of the tape and the tape is, gets really, really dry and it makes this atrocious sound. It sounds like when a child first learns violin, it's called scrape flutter. And so there are all sorts of, at this point, sort of experimental methods to ensure a tape is lubricated enough for playback without a lot of noise. I use jojoba oil, but to some archivists, that's a bit controversial. (laughs) There's also a bit of controversy in our final selection from the Scottish Ornithologists Club. The one, which is one of the weirdest, 
recordings we've captured because it is a it's a scientific research recording. I believe it, it's actually a Norwegian recording. This clip, which is rather more unusual, is by Geerwing Gabrielsen, who is a professor in exotoxicology and Arctic biology in Norway. So a scientist has hooked some electrodes to a grouse's body and recorded the change in their heart rate as an intruder closes in. There are some ethical things about this recording. The intruder is the scientific study itself and this kind of human fascination with other species biology. The recording is just are just the sounds, these bleeps of its heart rate. Um, and it goes from 30 BPM to 500 BPM, which, you know, in, in a human context, 500 BPM for a heart rate would be cardiac arrest. I loved this recording just because it's so bizarre and it it's not a beautiful dawn chorus or an environmental recording in a field or anything like that. From the anatomy of birds to botany and the final clip in this episode. From Glasgow University's archive, here's a lecture by James Holmes Dixon, recorded in the late 1980s. He was ahead of his time with remote learning. He'd slipped a disc and couldn't attend in person, so he recorded his lectures to play to his students. We need to study uh, natural vegetation. We uh, need to conserve it for scientific reasons, which are all bound up uh, in the most uh, pragmatic way uh, with our own existence, our own purely physical existence. Uh, As intelligent young people reading newspapers, good quality newspapers I hope, and watching the odd uh, wonderful programme on natural history, ecology on television, you cannot uh, have failed to be aware uh, of uh, the greenhouse effect, which all reputable scientists seem to think is uh, very much with us. And indeed, I have already alluded to it in terms of the rise or possible rise in sea level. James Holmes Dixon was born in Glasgow and he became a professor at the University of Glasgow. He's a botanist and professor of archaeobotany and plant systematics. And these recordings, it was his junior honours ecology class. And the whole series of lectures have been recorded and saved for posterity. There's no doubt that if it is a reality, and as I say, most people accept it as such, then many possibly drastic consequences ensue. And one way, undoubtedly, of restoring the carbon dioxide balance in our atmosphere is not merely to stop the unjustifiable reduction of tropical rainforest, especially that in South America, but elsewhere in the world also. No doubt that should be stopped, and reforestation should take place. And if these things happened, the physical uh, balance of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere would be 
restored. That lecture series, you know, it's quite fast. I think there's about 13, 45, 50-minute lectures. But what really struck me was those final lectures on conservation and how how much that lecture could be delivered now um, rather than 1989. The understanding of climate change and the environment and how the ecosystem all fits together has obviously been talked about for a long time. And they're wonderful because not only are they pertinent to today's discussions about climate change, but they're also incredibly listenable. I know other members of the team have put them on their mobile phones and listened to them while they're walking around some of the areas that are actually mentioned in the recordings. James Holmes Dixon lived somewhere in sort of the Milgai area. And when we had the five-mile travel radius during lockdown, Mugdock Country Park was just about five miles from where I live. And I would listen to these lectures while I was walking around Mugdock Park. And sometimes there would be these very fitting moments where he would talk about these unique lilies, water lilies, to, to the region. And from his description of, of, of their size and shape, I was actually able, on the very walk, to look at them and be right in their presence as he was talking about them. So there was this element of having this historical context from the past and then them just being extremely present decades later. James Holmes Dixon's botanical explorations took him all over Glasgow and sometimes he'd make discoveries in surprising locations. Right, in, uh, almost in the heart of Glasgow, one of the roughest bits of Glasgow, called the Garngad, that lasted a mile uh, northeast of George Square. Um, there are some abandoned railway sidings. It's very obvious that that's what they are because the sleepers are still there. Uh, you know, the outlines of the railway lines are very, very clear. Right in this uh, abandoned railway sidings, in a little hollow, man-made, partly man-made hollow, these sidings have become a bit flooded. This place, what is happening is that a bog is beginning to develop, a proper little a bog. Uh, I wish I could come back in a thousand years' time and there might be a metre of peat there, assuming it's left undisturbed. At uh, what uh, I happened to find it in July, and standing above it, you saw a kind of colourfulness which turned out to be an abundance of a common spotted orchid and a northern marsh orchid and a hybrid between them. Now, the great fusses tend to be made about orchids and conservation, and it's partly justified and it's partly unjustified. These two orchids in the Glasgow area, especially the common spotted orchid, is very common. And did you might, with not at all unreasonable uh, point of view, call them weeds. And in that place, they certainly exist in thousands. One of the funny things about orchid biology is that the populations fluctuate wildly in numbers each year. You may have thousands one year and only a few hundred the next, and so on. But anyway, these orchids are there. Uh, not to say that that necessarily makes the plant, the place, uh, very conservation-worthy. But then there's a whole suite of bog plants, many of which that you've... Uh, heard about in earlier lectures, half a dozen species of sphagnum, three species of sedge, that's carex, uh, both the, the areophorums, not for once growing on deep peat, um, 
and two or three willows and curiously enough all mixed up with kind of waste ground plants that are still surviving there the likes of Michaelmas daisy the commonly grown and commonly escaping uh, plant um, growing up through the these bog plants and hempagrimony but uh, most dramatic of all really there are so many plants of Drosera Drosera rotundifolia in places that it is impossible to uh, avoid treading on them so you see these things growing on the wooden sleepers amongst the sphagnum or amongst the ballast and they really are there by the thousand now of course the conservation interest uh, of that is that you don't need to read up the literature very often or open any local flora from Britain and it's commonplace for Drosera to be thought of as a declining species in need of protection because of course it usually grows in bogs and as I've said in an earlier lecture um, bogs are a very threatened habitat there are hardly any uh, bogs that are intact. Indeed we have none in the immediate vicinity of Glasgow uh, and Drosera only grows on a few of them. But here you have this uh, uh, seemingly declining plant colonising a totally new habitat, abandoned railway sidings close to the middle of Glasgow in profusion. So maybe that's a place that really ought to be conserved. James Holmes Dixon just a flavour of his lecture series, which can be accessed at the National Library of Scotland. I hope you've enjoyed this environmental tour of the archive. Thanks to our audio guides, Alistair Bell, Jenny Park and Connor Walker. Next time, we'll be exploring Scotland's vibrant history of activism. I'm Lindsay Moyes and this has been Unlocked, a podcast from National Library of Scotland and the Scotland Sounds Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>